when the tough gets going, the tough, the going, when the, boy, I blotched that one, didn't I? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. No pain, no gain. You can't keep a good man or woman down. Don't worry. The only way from here is up. Stay strong. You'll make it through this. We could go on with other familiar sayings and cliches that we've heard or perhaps uttered to ourselves or to others for consolation or encouragement when they're going through difficult, painful times. Well-intentioned, for sure, meant to help, but often empty of real wisdom or comfort, and certainly not containing sufficient answers to the hard questions that suffering raises in the hearts and minds of the sufferer. In dark times, such well-intentioned counsel can actually serve to, to deepen rather than enlighten the darkness. How do we face those hard questions of why is this happening? How will we get through this? Those, those desperate feelings that come, as we saw two weeks ago in Job chapter 3, when the, when the pain lingers long, when it continues on for, for months or even years. How do we comfort and counsel those who are, who are close to us as they go through what seems undeserved and, and often unbearable suffering? Welcome back to the book of Job. The story of this righteous, blameless man who suffers a series of devastating disasters that have taken away everything that, is ha that he has. His wealth, his children, his, his health. And it leaves him with nothing but this, this outer misery of unrelieved pain and this inner turmoil of unanswered questions as to why God would allow, why God would even cause all of this to come upon him. And unlike Job, we have, been, we have been given a glimpse behind the scenes, haven't we? We, we, have, we have seen that Satan has actually come and challenged God, accusing Job of, of only being faithful and serving God because God has blessed him so much. And so God allows Satan to bitterly afflict Job in order to, 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 in order to prove, ultimately prove Satan wrong and to vindicate God's own glory and prove Job's faith. And initially, Job's faith remains intact as he submits to the sovereign hand of God's providence. But time goes on and the pain and the misery continue, perhaps even intensify as Job sits in this, in this week-long deafening silence with his friends who have come there, traveled from afar to offer sympathy and comfort to him. And finally, Job cries out in desperation, wishing that he'd never been born, questioning why God would allow such things to happen to one who has, who has faithfully followed him. And so today we, we enter into the middle part of this book in which Job's three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, in response to this, this dark cry of the soul, Job again wishing he'd never be born and that God would just come and end his life, they feel compelled to respond and they begin to share words of counsel that open up this long series of, of dialogues, of debates between Job and his friends that continue from, from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 31 of this book. And these conversations happen in, in three cycles with each friend. 
So Job, Eliphaz speaks, as we read earlier, and, and Job responds to Eliphaz. And then Bildad comes, and he speaks his piece, and Job responds to Bildad. And then Zophar speaks up, and, and Job responds to him. And in all this, Job is also, is also crying out to God. And this cycle repeats itself three different times. And with, with each of the friends' speech kind of escalating in frustration and, and shortening in length until by the third round, Bildad can only come up with a few sentences and Zophar just gives up and doesn't even comment. Now, we're obviously not going to tackle all of this in one week, nor are we going to linger too long in each of these dialogues. So the reason for that is that, that each of these friends while seeking to offer some insight and consolation, are essentially arguing the same point in different ways. So as you read these chapters, which I encourage you to do, I hope you're, you're taking time during the week to, to read through this book, and, and if you get the weekly worship guide, it'll help you along in that, in that process. But as you read these chapters, you get the feeling you're hearing some of the same things over and over again, and that's because to some degree you really are. And so in order to spend adequate time looking at this section without getting too deep in the details of these recurring arguments, my plan over the next three weeks is to look at each of these three cycles of speeches, followed by what is Job's kind of summary defense. And if you get the, again, to get the weekly worship guide, you can follow along with those. So today we're going to deal with this first section or cycle of speeches that goes from verse chapter 4 to chapter 14. And we're going to focus mainly on the first speech by Eliphaz because that kind of lays out this, the, the, the main argument that the three friends of Job give. And though he and the others are intending to shine light on the situation and on Job's predicament, they actually serves to deepen the darkness of Job's pain. And then we're also going to look at Job's response in terms of, of his clinging and growing, uh, clinging to a, a dawning and growing hope that brings glimpses of, of comfort to him in this. And so we'll look first at the darkening counsel of the three friends and then the dawning hope that we begin to see in Job's response. As we begin to turn to these, these, these speeches, we need to be aware that Job's suffering is is being viewed from two completely different perspectives. Job's friends all conclude that the cause of Job's suffering must be that he has committed some sin. In seeking to uphold the sovereignty of God, the, the righteousness and justice of God, they are operating on the principle that the wicked suffer, I mean, excuse me, the, 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 yeah, the wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. We've seen that as a, as a principle of wisdom in our study of Proverbs this summer, and it generally is true. So, so we'll see as, as we go through these speeches, these guys are, are orthodox in many ways in their teaching or in their theology. They know that God is just. They know that God must punish sin. And so in their minds, Job's ordeal is evidence that he is being punished, and therefore Job must have sinned. Their concern for Job is, what did you do to deserve this? Search your heart. Surely there's something that must have brought this on. The problem from their perspective lies with Job. 
And this is often the first thing, if you think about it, that comes to mind when we or someone we know goes through a hard or painful experience. Our first thought is usually, what, what did we do or what did they do to, to, to bring this on? But from Job's perspective, though he would agree that God is sovereign and God is just and that he, yes, does punish sin, the issue is completely different. Job maintains his integrity, as we heard. He, he is sure of his, his innocence. Not that he has, he has never sinned against God, but that he, has, he is one who has listened to and kept God's word. He is one who, who has atoned for sin and the sacrifices he makes for his children and for, for himself and his family. And so he clings to the truth that in God's eyes, he is blameless. He is upright. He is accepted. For Job, the fact that he is suffering so deeply calls into question God's goodness and God's justice, which he won't deny, but which he doesn't understand in his particular circumstances. And thus he's, he's crying out, he's longing for some explanation. How can God be just if he is punishing me who, has, who, who love him and has followed him? The responses of Job's friends begin with Eliphaz, which we read earlier. Eliphaz is the most gentle and the pastoral at first in bringing up his points. He's the oldest of the three friends, probably the most respected of them. He approaches Job with a, with a tone of sympathy, pointing out Job's own counsel for the hurting. He says, you have instructed many, you have strengthened the weak hands, your words have upheld the stumbling and firmed up the feeble. In other words, Job, you, you have lived out the comfort and the counsel to those who are going through such things. And then he says, but now this happens to you and you're impatient. His manner is, is sympathetic and he seems to be trying to, to identify to some degree with Job. But now he says, Job, the shoe's on the other foot and ironically, he says, isn't your hope and confidence in fearing God and maintaining your integrity? And I, if I was Job, I would just want to shout out, yes, that's exactly what it is. But Eliphaz is kind of questioning it, like maybe, maybe your integrity isn't so in, in, in such good integrity. But then Eliphaz gets to the point in verse 7 of chapter 4. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Where were the upright cut off? As I have seen it, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And in some ways, that's the principle that will steer all these conversations of these counselors. They're coming to, to help Job to, to offer up truth. And this is the truth that they lock onto as they seek to give that counsel. And in some ways... Well, what is that truth? That the innocent don't perish. You reap what you sow. And since, Job, you're reaping all kinds of trouble, there's obviously something you have sown to cause that. Eliphaz even tries to bolster his case by claiming this supernatural insight from this vision that he had. It's kind of a creepy thing. It's kind of like a, this, you know, this, this apparition appears to him and he shares that, you know, this is what I heard. And you're kind of expecting this, you know, this, this great advice for Job. And he just says, you know, uh, can, who can stand right before God? Well, 
obviously no one. But anyway, he couches this, this counsel in this, in this supernatural in, encounter, kind of like when someone very well-meaning and sincere comes in a difficult situation and they say, you know what, I've been praying for you and the Lord just told me that I should share this with you. Or I had a dream last night and the Spirit impressed upon me to share this with you. Now, I don't want to downplay in any way the importance of praying, the importance of seeking the Spirit's counsel, the importance of of how the Spirit might impress upon us something. But we have to be very careful when we're counseling and comforting others that we don't bathe our counsel in some kind of personal revelation or, or interpretation that could be very misinformed and misapplied to that situation. And so in chapter 5, Eliphaz goes on and, and he questions the effectiveness of Job's prayer, saying in effect at the beginning of that chapter, you know, Job, why are you even praying? God nor his angels are going to answer you. He infers that Job's vexation with God is foolishness, alluding to the, to the tragedies that Job has experienced as just being the result of this vast difference between a, a holy and, and transcendent God and, and lowly sinful man. And as you go through these speeches, we, we, we note again that much of what Eliphaz and his friends are saying is true. He says that all men are sinners and born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. He speaks of the one whom the Lord reproves and disciplines as being blessed. And not to, not to reprove, the, not, not, not to, to shun the Lord's discipline in chapter 5. These principles of wisdom, that you, you reap what you sow, that the Lord punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous, that, that God's disciplines those he loves, are all what we would call sound doctrine, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're repeated in, in, the, in the New Testament. But sound doctrine misapplied, or sound doctrine wielded in a blanket sort of manner without adequate knowledge of or consideration of, of the person or of the circumstances they're dealing with, can be more harmful than helpful. Can be more harmful than helpful. It's not unusual for someone to say something, even something true, that's meant to offer help. It's meant to give insight. It's meant to bring encouragement. And it actually ends up hurting or making matters worse. Husbands, we are pretty good Job's counselors with our wives. We often say things that we think will be helpful, that we think will be encouraging, only to find out not so much. Children, how often as a parent, has your parent come and, 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 and you've hurt yourself or you've made a bad decision and the first words out of their mouth is, well, if you would have listened to me, this might not have happened to you. I said that to my kids all the time. It's true, but it's not always the most helpful or most comforting thing to say right away. The remedy Eliphaz offers up to Job in chapter 4, verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Job, let's lay aside all this complaining, all this emoting, and just repent. And God will deliver you from all these troubles. Eliphaz would have been a great televangelist. Complete with, I received a vision from the Lord. Just give it over to God. 
Just have more faith. Just repent and trust him more. And do what is right and he'll bless you. In chapter 8, Bildad the Shuite is not quite as diplomatic as Eliphaz. He starts out, in essence, calling Job a windbag. And then he states his premise. Does God pervert justice or what is right? Obviously, the answer to that is no. But then Bildad callously applies it by saying to Job in eight, chapter 8, verse 4, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. In other words, Job, your kids got what they deserved. Mm, pretty hard. In Bildad's mind, there are only two kinds of people. There are the blameless and there are the wicked. And God reveals who is who by blessing one and cursing the other. Bildad appeals to the, to the history and the traditions of those who have gone before to, to learn, as he says in verse 832, that God will not reject a blameless man, nor will he take the hand of evildoers. And the remedy that he offers in verse 5 is likewise. Seek God and plead for mercy. And if you're truly pure and right, he will restore your rightful fortunes. Now again, all of this isn't lining up with Job in his perspective. You know, this is, this is not the reality of his experience. And so Job responds in, in chapter 9 to Bildad in verse 23 and 24. Actually, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He mocks the calamity of the innocent. He gives the earth into the hands of the wicked. And Job continues to go on and, and, and hold fast to his claim of innocence before God. And that brings in Zophar, who comes across much more severe, much less compassionate. And he enters with both guns blazing in chapter 11. He says, in essence, in verse 3 of chapter 11, Job, shame on you. Are we just going to listen to all this talk and nobody's going to actually come in and, and, and correct you? He accuses Job of claiming to be pure and clean in God's eyes, perhaps interpreting that as a claim to, to, to sinlessness, which, remember, Job never makes. And then Zophar says, ironically, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 11, Oh, that God would come and speak to you as you desire, and then you would know that he's, he's actually exacted from you less than you deserve. He says, Job, if you could stand before God like you want, you'd actually find out that he's, he's been pretty light on you. He hasn't, he, hasn't, he hasn't given you everything that he could give. And again, his answer, if you prepare your heart, if you put your sin away, then you can lift your face without shame and your life will be brighter again. So we might start thinking with, with friends like these, who needs enemies, right? Now, for sure, these were Job's friends. They cared about him. They traveled a long way to sit with him in his, in his pain. They wanted to comfort him. Their intentions were good. They truly wanted to give, to give counsel, to give comfort. And they, for the most part, had, had sound theology and doctrine with which to do so. But again, where it's wrongly applied, it can do more harm. Where it seeks to shed light, if we're not careful and considerate of the situation, it can actually add to the darkness, cause more confusion. 
Where it seeks to comfort, it can actually condemn and, and bring greater pain. Eliphaz and his colleagues spoke the truth about God, but they came to the wrong conclusion about Job. And in counseling and comforting others, or even in seeking to, to counsel and comfort ourselves in difficult situations, we can sometimes fail to grasp the, the complexities of, of human nature and, of, and of, of the situations we face or others are facing. We can, we can fail to grasp the complexity of suffering and its effects on, on not only our mind, our body, and our, on, but our spirit as well. And in doing so, we run the risk of, of, of somehow misunderstanding or even misrepresenting God to our fellow sufferer. And let's be honest. Job was not an easy person to comfort or to counsel. He, his anger was expressed so blatantly. The doubts he wrestled with, the accusations he lodged. Sometimes when we're, we're sitting with somebody through hard things, th- those can be hard to hear. And they can be hard to respond to. But we have to be careful not to, to discount or to dismiss that. Not to, not to dismiss the reality of that struggle. To assume that, that we have the right fix. I think sometimes as Reformed Presbyterians who rightly value sound doctrine, who rightly have a high view, as we've already talked about, of, of God's sovereignty and justice, just as Job and his friends did, sometimes we can, we can answer a question like, why do bad things happen to good people with, with something like, well, they don't, because there are no good people. We're all sinners, We might be speaking the truth, but it doesn't adequately, adequately account for all the situations, for why the Apostle Paul suffered hardship that caused him to despair even unto death when he was carrying the gospel. Why Stephen, who, who was testifying that Jesus is the Savior, is stoned to death by an angry mob. It doesn't account for why a mother of young children is struck down with terminal cancer or why a a young child dies in a car crash or why a a son or a daughter wanders off into uh, turning away from the faith. Why a godly man seeking to provide for his family is laid off from his job. It doesn't explain why Job, whom the Bible and God call blameless and upright, is, by the will of God, Allowed to suffer the loss of everything. Yes, we are all sinners. Yes, God does punish sin. And yes, sometimes bad things do happen to good people. Sometimes saints suffer. Sometimes the wicked prosper. And our counsel and our comfort in various situations does not always fit into a nice, neat theological box. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that the answers that we need, as Job will find out, come from God and they come from his word. If we want to be good counselors, if we want to receive good counsel, we need to be grounded in truth. We need to be steeped in the revelation of God and the truth of his word and the grace of the gospel. But let us be careful. Let us be careful 
to apply it with humility, to apply it with love. Not to brandish the sword of the Spirit like a, a ninja warrior, but more like a surgeon with a scalpel seeking to bring healing. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I may have heard this from Tim Keller, but I think he was quoting Charles Spurgeon, who said that in times of suffering, we need to go into people's lives with a mixture of truth and tears. Truth and tears. We need to be sensitive to their plight. When someone is hurting, when the questions are flying, when the anger is rising, when their faith is, is teetering, that might not be the best time for a theological discussion on God's justice. They may need truth, but they also might just need a long walk and an ear to listen. They might, like Elijah, when he was in the, in the desert, just need from, from God's angel a good night's sleep and a meal. Like the, Job's friends heard his words, but they didn't really listen for what was going on in his soul. Their concern for him was overridden by their need to diagnose the problem, to derive a solution, and frankly, to defend God. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, when someone is hurting, we do not need to defend God. We might just need to love them. Well, what about Job's response? The darkened counsel of his friends only heightens his fear and his confusion and his protest against the idea that there is, is some hidden sin in his life which has brought on this punishment. Insisting that he has done nothing wrong, he begins to, to cry out in growing fear that, that God is against him. His calamity, he says in, in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, is, is more than the sands of the sea. He sees his suffering as the, the arrows of the Almighty, piercing and, and, and poisoning his, his soul. The terrors of God, he says, are arrayed against me. Similar to what we read in Psalm 38 as, as David was dealing with his struggles. Job rebukes his friends for withholding kindness in chapter 6, verse 14. And for boasting superior wisdom, he says, surely all this wisdom lies with you right? <laughs> For making him a laughing stock while at the same time he pleads with them to teach him, to make him understand where is his sin. Just show me what I've done wrong and I'll, I'll give consideration to that. And he pleads that they would look on him with justice and compassion. But despite these lectures from his friends, Job does not budge. He will not confess sins that he has not committed. He submits to the will and the power and the sovereignty of God. But Job cannot understand why God would put him through all this. Since in his mind, he, he, he can't think of anything he has done wrong. In fact, his desire that God would crush him is so that he would have what he says is this one consolation. That I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Job's one consolation his one comfort is, I've been faithful. <laughs> I can't think, I, there's, there's nowhere I can see that I have denied God. But his biggest fear is that he might not remain faithful. 
And they might not be able to maintain his integrity under pressure. And so he says, better for me just to die now. Then I would at least know. (laughs) So he cries out to God directly, complaining to him in the bitterness of his soul. In chapter 7, verse 17, he says, What is man that you make so much of him that you set your heart on him? Does that sound familiar? Psalm 8, where, you you know, what is man that, that... He's so low and yet you crown him with glory. But Job doesn't say it like that. He says, what is man that you set your heart on him, visiting him every morning and testing him every moment? Job in effect says, God, please, I don't want more of your attention. Leave me alone. He feels like God, he is in, literally in God's crosshairs. A burden to him and he begins to question God's grace and his promise of forgiveness. And I think one thing we can learn from Job is that he is emotionally honest and very real. He doesn't hide his pain or his feelings about his pain or about God. But notice this. Job doesn't complain about God to his friends. He complains to God. Even though he has hard, raw, even accusatory things to say, He speaks his heart directly to God. Even though he admits there's no way that that he can contend with the Almighty and his heart just fears the prospect of even doing so, Job knows there's only one place where he can find any hope in this mess. And that is with God. And that's the, the dawning hope that he clings to. And in this insistence and persistence of Job to make, make his case before God, that we, it's there that we see this, this glimmer of hope that will grow stronger and brighter as these conversations go on. It begins in his response to Bildad, where he in essence agrees that, yes, I know God is, is, is holy. I know there's no way for a mere man to actually contend and win an argument with God. But he says in chapter 9, verse 27 through 30, even if I were to forget my complaint and just, just put on a good face and make like things were okay, I would still fear my suffering because you would not hold me innocent. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lie, yet you would still plunge me back into the pit. In other words, Job says, I can't make this go away. I can't just buck up and endure this with a smile. I can't just clean up my act and and assume everything will be better. Job knows that he is not on par with God and he cannot make himself right with God. And then he comes to to this realization there in verse 33. He says, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. What I need, Job says, is a mediator. If only there were someone who could, who could arbitrate between us, who could, who could lay his hand upon both of us, understanding both of our, our situations and, and, and our, our circumstances, and someone that could remove God's rod from me so that I could come to him in confidence and not in terror. Then, he says, I would speak without fear of him. But as it now stands, he says, I cannot. So in chapters 13 and 14, Job is emboldened 
to continue to press his case. He says in chapter 13, verse 13, let me have silence and I will speak. Speaking to God here. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and my life in my hands? In other words, why should I, why should I be try to figure out what I can do about this? He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, God. And I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. Job is saying, yeah, the godless shall not come before him. But right now, I am not godless. <laughs> he is confident in his continued faithfulness to God. And he says, behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I am in the right. Job wants his day in court. And we're su when we're suffering, that's what we want, isn't it? We want our day in court. That God might show and reveal to him his sin and his iniquities. He says, I might die in the process. He might slay me. But that's my only hope. Now we know, as Job does, that there's no way a man can stand in the right before God on his own. Job admits, again, he cannot contend with God. And he longs for someone to arbitrate for him. He knows what he needs. And he continues to trust that God will provide that need and will be just and faithful. And brothers and sisters, Job's dawning hope is our risen hope. Our realized hope. There's only one man who has never denied the words of the Holy One. There's only one person who has fully kept all the commands and demands of God perfectly. There is only one person who is truly blameless, truly upright before the Lord. And that is his servant and his son, Jesus Christ. There's only one person who can fulfill the role that Job is longing for. Someone to stand as an arbiter, a mediator between God and man. And that is the one who is both fully God and fully man. Jesus has entered into the pain, into the suffering of a sinful, evil, broken world. All the temptations and trials of Satan could, that, that Satan could throw at him, he has borne. And he's even borne the wrath of God and death for sin, our sin. 2 Corinthians tells us, chapter 5, verse 21, God made him to be sin who had no sin. In order that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Job's friends were asking the right question. Who, being innocent, has ever perished? But they could not yet see God's answer. Jesus, the perfectly innocent one, perished for us, for you, and for me. He reaped what we sowed sin and death, that we might reap what he freely gives, forgiveness and life and righteousness before God. Job had an argument and a plea before God, but he knew since if it only stood on his merit, it was a shaky plea. He looked to God's promise and he longed for someone to plead his case for him. And brothers and sisters, as the song, the great hymn says, we need no other argument, we need no other plea. 
It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for you and for me. As Job and his friends continue their own arguments, Job's dawning hope will begin to shine more and more brightly. But for us, that hope is a blazing light. It's a living hope in Jesus Christ. John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness had not, has not overcome it. Jesus' counsel will never darken your situation more. It will only make it lighter. Job's hope was in God and his promises, and even when he could not see or understand how it would be worked out, and our hope is in God and his promises fulfilled in Jesus. And even though sometimes we can't see how it's going to work out, we still see in a mirror dimly, Paul says. We know we have that confident, sure hope that we shall see him face to face, and we shall stand with him in glory. And so, brothers and sisters, the comfort and consolation that we have to offer to others And that we have to comfort ourselves in trials and in suffering. It's the comfort of Christ. It's the righteousness and the assurance of God's love that we have been given through him. In him we can now boldly enter, Paul says, the throne room of grace. Without fear. Freely. To receive the mercy and the grace that we need And as we look for comfort and hope in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the things that are going on around us in the world, for our family, our friends who are going through deep suffering, let us be very careful to do so with both truth and tears. And to look and to point to the one who can only the only one who can give the ultimate comfort, Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are a help in ages past and our hope for years to come. There are those here today, Lord, who undoubtedly are dealing with trials, going through pain, wrestling with the why questions. Father, I pray that you would comfort, that you would counsel, that you would embrace in your loving arms and we pray this in Jesus name Amen